somewhere in a remote, uncharted region of a planet called Earth. Greetings, my friends. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And remember, my friends, future events such as these will affect you in the future. Time and space. Contact has been established. We now transmit you direct to... Tales from the Silent Planet. Welcome to Tales from the Silent Planet. I am Daniel Schultz, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nick Wells. And, Nick, it is, it is now December, and November is over, and I have... Uh, that means that National Novel Writing Month is over. And uh, I don't know if you've heard how I fared towards the end of the month yet or not. I did not, but my my hope is that you did well. My assumption is, with the holidays, it, it would be easy to fall off. So, so how did you do? Well, your assumption was correct. Towards the end of the month, when Thanksgiving started rolling around, I basically didn't write at all. Ah, yes. And so, coming into the last week, I was barely getting close to like 40,000 words so I still had 10,000 words to do in the last two days of November <clears throat> and so on the second to last day for whatever reason I only wrote 1,800 words and it was just I couldn't get anything going had a bunch of stuff to do and didn't get it and then on the last day I finished like 8,000 more words, basically, on the last day I ended up writing so that I could get it done. That is dedication right there. That's awesome. Yeah, but I did it. I did it. I got to 50,000. So that's. I think that's the last time I'm going to do National Novel Writing Month. I think I'm going to end on top. Yeah, right. Um, so if you don't mind, this is entirely up to your discretion here. Uh, do you want to talk about what you wrote a bit, or...? Sure, yeah, I can talk about that. Um, basically, the story I wanted to write was something that I thought I could, that we talked about before, that I, I thought I could have the plot and get to the 50,000 words. I didn't really worry too much about what it was going to be about, but the story I wrote was about a former Navy corpsman who finds himself suddenly in an alternate world basically along with his sister and I expected the plot to sort of move along pretty quickly and for him to find himself in different precarious situations as would be fit being in a new fantastical world with uh, elves and dwarves and such dragons and things and basically it was the idea was it was supposed to be just a sort of simple adventure where he's gonna fight these monsters and bad guys and save the day 
and that was the goal. And then I got into the writing, and suddenly it became about weird politics and all of this. You know, there's a this race of half elves that are sort of being oppressed, and they've started a republic. And the king, the elven kings, except for the one kingdom, they all want to sort of take over this elven this half elven republic, because they have resources that the elven kingdoms don't have and it was just it, it became this this much more than I thought it would we'll say and I wasn't expecting that but it was pretty enjoyable and I think ultimately the characters grew into something a little bit more fleshed out and I created some characters that I didn't have in my original outline that I actually liked a lot and made into major characters in the book that are going to have an impact as it goes forward. That's awesome. Yeah, that uh, it's funny. I was listening to, well, I was actually reading up on a fan theory about uh, King Killer Chronicle, the King Killer Chronicle from Patrick Rothfuss. And um, the author was citing kind of how Rothfuss, before he was editing the story, like when he said, you know, I've had all three books written since before the first book was published, I think. Mm -hmm. um, he actually never had the characters like Ari or uh, Davy, Devi, however you pronounce it, uh, in the story until actually the revision process for the first book, which took up the majority of the time. So um, it's funny how, you know, and he kind of even commented at one point, Rothfuss, how you have to kind of, you can go into it with an outline, but you have to let it naturally grow on its own. And, and you, have, you have to have loose boundaries so that the story can know kind of take itself over i guess you know yeah for sure there it's interesting there's i've done a lot of sort of research about different ways that people plot their books just because i really wish that i could do it and there's some people that just plot it out super meticulously and they have every moment of the story basically uh detailed before they start writing and i I just wouldn't know how to do that. I, I don't think... For me, the creative aspect of it comes as I'm writing. And I guess if I wrote sort of a, a synopsis, I think that it would... You know, about what would happen in the story. I think that would ultimately just be a first draft, and then I would revise it, so... Yeah. Yeah, but it was fun. I, I really did enjoy accomplishing it. Uh, having done it, what what did I say? It was like my fourth or fifth time starting it. I don't remember. Yeah, I think but, so. Yeah, and I I managed to do it just barely, but I was really, really happy that I that I did it. And that great start that I got off to was the only reason that I was able to finish it. Yeah, and it's funny because you think you want to pick a month that is not like crazy busy with holidays and you know <laughs> events and family and somehow. Right? Somehow Nano Remo got like stuck in the, like the worst one of the worst months for that. I, I, like, I so. know I, I don't really understand why they they picked it, but especially for the United States with Thanksgiving, that's a, a holiday where there's a lot of travel involved and family get-togethers, and I guess it's just really supposed to test your dedication. Yeah, right. I think if I, if I was to continue with it and do it again, which I highly doubt I will do. Um, today I wrote like just a couple hundred words and was 
I worked on a different project that I was excited to get back to, and that was sort of my little break was just to write just a few hundred words. But if I did do NaNoWriMo again, which again I highly doubt, I think what I would try to do is write like 2,000 words a day, keep it just barely above what the you know the amount you're supposed to write per day and not and try to do every single day so to try to accomplish the the goal of writing every single day and not just writing the 50,000 in a month right but yeah i i was pretty pretty stoked that i was able to do it finally awesome now one question that i'm rather curious about that we actually haven't talked about before this is uh you know the whole concept of time travel in your novella uh how did that happen how so the uh the mechanism within the story that yeah oh i can't i can't say that <laughs> let's just say a wizard did it a wizard did it okay <laughs> yeah i guess i'll have to live with that for now it was a. It was. I'll say it was a byproduct of somebody else's magic that, basically, within this universe, or multiple universes, there are certain individuals that can travel between worlds, planets. They can travel through, you know, time or to different dimensions, and those people that can control that are very rare, and. One person that cannot control it, but does travel to different places, as a byproduct of their of their magic, they these other characters ended up going into a different world. So, gotcha. I've um, I've always considered writing something in that vein, but I just um, I guess I'm just not confident enough as a writer because I feel like I need to justify that more, like. Um, even even when other writers write about fantastical things and I read it and I get engrossed in it, I love it. But at the same time, if I ever think about writing something, I, I feel something really fantastical and awesome, um, like time travel or something big like that, I, I feel the need to justify it somehow, and I just never know how to do that in a, in a legitimate way. So I always shy away from stuff like that. So I'm always curious to see how other people do that. Yeah, and I, I understand that that feeling and I this premise of these of people going into a world where there's sort of elves and dwarves and it it just seemed like that's everybody's sort of fan that's the generic fantasy world and I was sort of hesitant to to actually write in it but once I started doing it I felt like oh well I'm just you know it doesn't have to make total sense right now I have sort of a core idea of how I think this stuff works, and since uh, it's not like I'm gonna try and get this book published anytime soon, or you know, when I do finish it, but the you know, I have time to work that stuff out as long as I have an idea of what happened and why it happened, and not exactly how it happened, then I think it worked for me at least. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's awesome that you were able to do it, and um, I've read some of the, some of your writing very minimally, but um, you know I know it's good, so I, 
I'd like to read it at some point. So uh, let me know. Let us know when that does uh, become available to to everyone here. But uh, but yeah, awesome. All right. So one thing we are going to do differently today is we're actually not going to talk about a book and. Although I think that's what our main topics are going to be. Each show is books because we read so much and I really enjoy talking about books. Today we're actually going to talk about a... See, I, I feel weird calling it a television series when it doesn't broadcast over the television. But uh, we're going to be talking about Stranger Things, which has sort of passed away in the general the, the culture to sort of that was what was popular a couple months ago but I think that's the perfect time to talk about something is when it's just starting to fade into people's memories yeah I agree and it's funny because you recommended that I that I watch it and um, you know I as I was watching it I binge watched it in two days with my wife and we started watching it and I was just like man I just I just need to finish this it's not long and so um you know, my wife and I just kind of powered through it, but uh, it really struck me, kind of surprising. Maybe I just haven't watched any suspenseful or horror genre type uh, type material in a while, but like it was part of it was like really suspenseful, mm -hmm. and um, I was surprised that you had recommended it because you, from what you've told me, uh, tend to not gravitate that way. So I was I was a little bit surprised. I thought it was going to be more. Um, and it, it was to a point, but it wasn't like, it wasn't what I expected. I, I expected it to be like just almost satire from previous generations, but it really, I think, was its own show, even though it built off of that. Well, for me, I, I grew up not really watching a lot of horror and stuff like that or reading it. But we always watched The X-Files. And I remember when I was a kid, there was one episode in particular that really creeped me out to a great degree. And I told my parents, that really scared me. And so we stopped watching it for a while. And my older brother was so mad at me that we had stopped watching X-Files. He just would not let me forget that I had caused us to not watch X-Files for like a few months until I was a little bit older. But we... Uh, so I, I grew up watching paranormal stuff like X-Files, Twilight Zone, things like that. For me, when I think about horror, I think about that being different than a monster movie. So one of my favorite movies is The Thing. Have you seen The Thing? I have not seen oh, The Thing. Oh man, you need to rectify that. That's another must must experience. So I won't say much about it, but that is a a very suspenseful movie and there's it's John Carpenter, so there's some uh, pretty gruesome things in there but he also directed Halloween and I will never watch Halloween I just it has no appeal to me to see someone like going around like killing people uh, just a regular guy going around killing people like that 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 to me is horror or people locked in a cabin and they're getting killed off one by one <laughs> it, it sounds kind of arbitrary when I've just said that I really like the thing which is essentially that that story right. but um i'm at least discerning about when it comes to sort of more suspenseful things and i think i picked up and watched stranger things on netflix because it was just so it was so prevalent everyone was talking about it 
And so I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And people were talking about it being like a Steven Spielberg thing. And so I was like, well, if it's like a Steven Spielberg work, then it can't be all that bad. And even the uh, the the little picture on Netflix was sort of like the old Stephen King, or not Stephen King, the old Steven Spielberg movie posters for like Indiana Jones and stuff. And then I watched it and got really engrossed in it and it was a lot like X-Files in, in the setting and stuff. X-Files almost was always, since it was filmed in, I think in Vancouver, in the Pacific Northwest at least, they, they were always set in sort of forests. And you'll notice that in shows when, like Stargate SG-1 was another show that was filmed in Vancouver area. And so every planet that they go to in Stargate SG-1 is filmed in a really wooded area. And that's how you can tell it's been filmed in Vancouver. But um, when I... So that that sort of reminded me of just the, sort of the setting and the, the paranormal aspect of it really reminded me of X-Files. And so I got really caught up in it. And actually my wife and I, we binge-watched it in two days as well. Nice. Yeah, it's just... It was so good. It's just like just want to know what happens and um i think my favorite thing about the show and if you want to watch the show without our commentary probably this would be a good time to to go do that we would love to have you with us but if you want to experience it on your own now might be that time uh, but anyway one of the things that i really really thought they did so well about this was they had you learning about this uh the demogorgon or whatever they call it um from like, I would say four different perspectives primarily, and each different perspective, uh, you know, doesn't know what the other side knows, all the other sides know, but um, they're all putting together different things. Like um, the two teenagers kind of put together that uh, they're hunting it, it's like a monster, and that it, it hunts for animals, and it brings it back into the, the un- upside down, I forget what they call it. Yeah, the upside down. So, um, you know, those two kind of, like, figure out it's like a predator, and they go to hunt it. And, um, you know, the the mom and the cop, well, more the mom figures out everything with the lights and that, you know, you can kind of track what's going on in, in the upside down based upon light activity. Um, and then you got, who are the other ones? Uh, the cop, who's kind of tracking it down from the other perspective of the facility, and then the kids who are just, you know, trying to figure everything out, and they're more engrossed in the fantastical aspects. And I thought that uh, jumping from those perspectives made it really, really awesome. And I was really, really um, impressed by it. I thought it was great. Yeah, I I think also the, the that different perspective was good. And the idea that the cop was going around and actually doing investigation was something that was was sort of something you don't see very much anymore the especially in horror movies and more horror themed things the cops are almost always acting really dumb and they don't believe you that there's actually a creature or a monster attacking people but in this one the cop almost immediately realized, okay, something is actually wrong here. And he spent most of the movie being really competent. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And 
I think one of the things, one of the reasons I liked the the show was that the the acting was really really good, and none of the except for Matthew Modine as the bad guy, or I don't, as the government official, is he really? We can't really know. He didn't really. We don't really know his motivations all that much, but the uh, except for him, pretty much everybody's face was something new, and obviously. The mom, played by what's her face? Uh, yeah, she. I was really impressed um, when I looked at the lineup. I was like, I don't know any of these people, but Winona Ryder. Yeah. And, and then Ryder. when she had to go crazy, I understood why they needed Winona Ryder because mm-hmm. she just did that so well. Well, yeah, and I, I feel like when I watch things, I don't, I don't see all that many movies, but I don't really think that I've seen her in much. Of late, you know, I, I know she was in the the first rebooted Star Trek movie. She played Spock's mom, but other than that, I, I don't really remember having seen her very often in things lately. So it was nice to see her in something. Yeah. And one of the the best moments of the show that sort of encapsulates the acting, I think, other than the acting between the kids, which was fantastic, was when the character Eleven the little girl she first escapes and she is talking to the guy in the diner and he's helping her and for some reason that scene really touched me with that guy just being like a genuine nice guy and not being some sort of scumbag that was would take advantage of her or like not, not try to help her throw her out or anything but rather he was like here's a girl that needs my help and he really wanted to help her and then we've already said basically spoiler alert but then when he gets shot by the government officials it was just heartbreaking because in just the few scenes that that guy had you realized oh this is a really great person this is a really nice person that's trying to help this girl and then immediately he dies yeah yeah they really didn't um they really escalated quite quickly (laughs) they didn't take any time with that so I um yeah, you don't really see that as much either uh with the compassionate person. It's usually at least in a lot of the books that I read, the people are a lot more harsh uh right off the bat and then and then the nice guy got killed that was uh I think it impacted kind of everything cuz you just saw how far the the antagonists were willing to go and what they were willing to do which just made that tension throughout the whole rest of the rest of the series. Well, yeah, and then with him dying right off the bat, and then Eleven hiding in the the main boy's home for the rest of the movie, or the movie, essentially it's an eight-hour movie. It's not really a television show, but I, I hope that that's the way that media goes forward, is that the people are allowed to make, like, basically an eight-hour film. But back to my original point the because she's in the home where you know the main boy and his parents and his sister live and she's she's being hidden there because that guy died earlier in the story you you have this sense of dread they're going to find out that she's there like are his family is his parents are they going to get killed like you, you don't know 
because they set up that these government officials will kill people that know about this girl. At that point, you're thinking back to that, and that was a brilliant move to to do that early in the story so that when she is in that different situation, you're not really sure how it's going to go. Yeah. The one thing I will say about those parents are they must be the most oblivious individuals in in the history of television. Uh, just, I mean, you know, you have the, the two boys basically sneaking into the girls' room. Uh, periodically, you got 11 living in the basement and nobody knows about it. And it's just like, what? It, I mean, it, it doesn't really bother me. It's just like, they, they just must be very oblivious. But um, I was just laughing. I was like, man, I, I hope that I'm never that. I, you know, maybe, maybe I'm naive, but I don't think that uh, my kids will ever be able to pull the wool over my eyes quite like that. But um, I mean, I guess that's kind of how they were portrayed as more aloof and the mom was always focused on the child and the dad was barely there when he even when he was there so yeah and they i thought in the beginning of the story with those two characters i felt them to be the weakest and that's that's one of the reasons why it was because they were so oblivious but then as i recalled towards the end you realize they do care about their kids they are real characters and they're not just cartoons, but they they were the weakest characters in the in the story, I think. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes, and I I loved it. And the thing about series like this and books like this, I mean, if you I don't know if you've ever seen or read, I doubt you have, but Hearts in Atlantis by Stephen King. I've never read it, but I would like to. Um, but I really loved that movie. And um, just like one of the things I was surprised with in that movie was kind of akin to this series where uh, just the, the brutality and the violence of, of young children and um, like almost to the point of like they're willing to commit murder. And it seems so unrealistic, but I think that I think those things are OK in, in um, horror stories and suspense stories. And uh, when the one bully who L makes wet himself um, in front of the whole school, uh, kind of confronts the main character. Is it, um, is it Will? Yeah. I think it's, yeah, Will. When he confronts Will on that cliff in that wooded area, um, and he's like, you know, if you don't step off the cliff, I'm gonna, you know, rip the rest of his teeth out or whatever with this knife. And he had the other kid, like in a chokehold, holding this knife up to him. And so being the good kid that Will is, uh, Will goes to step off the edge and the background to that part was that Eleven had ran away because Will and his, one of his best friends got into a fight and she protected Will and hurt the other get, hurt the other kid and the other kid ran off upset and then she ran off so they were without their they were without their you know they were without Eleven the one who could really help them out and defend them and so he's about to walk off this cliff and you just see him walk over and you're just and you and you're just like oh my gosh and then you see him like levitating there and I don't remember if the show did it or not but I feel like music should have been playing when the camera panned up to Elle and she just like lifts him back up and breaks the kid's arm like it was just like because you just didn't I don't know I wasn't really sure how they were going to resolve that and they restored my hope and I was like yes yeah that was a pretty crazy part that kid the main 
the boy that was in the Upside Down was Will, and Mike was the one that was looking for him. Okay, Mike, yeah. Um, but that scene is so perfect, and the whole movie, like, there, there's been all this talk about on the internet, and pretty much everyone mentions, oh, the nostalgia, and oh, it, it feels like an 80s movie, and Steven Spielberg, and Stephen King, and this and that. But that scene is so brilliant and they and is so epic and so scary and so tense that forget all this stuff about how it's about nostalgia that is the like ultimate crux of the film i think where you finally have the full demonstration of this girl's powers you you've seen her do these things you know that she can do them but then a boy's about to step off a cliff into this quarry filled with water and you know like there's no way he's going to survive that and you know she like he's got to be saved somehow but they just milk it till that last moment and there's this Alfred Hitchcock quote where he talks about the difference between uh, horror and suspense and in suspense, basically the premise is there's a different, there's a similar setup to a horror movie and a suspense movie. Two people are sitting at a table and there's a bomb underneath the table and they don't know and it's going to go off. And in a horror movie, the bomb goes off and they die. But in a suspense movie, the bomb must never go off. Alfred Hitchcock says the bomb must never go off. And the bomb doesn't go off. He steps off the cliff, and you're like, oh my word, and you're on the edge of your seat, and your heart's in your throat, and then he's saved at the last moment. And that's what... I took a screenwriting class in college, and that twist, the moment where you've convinced the audience that a certain thing is going to happen, and at the, then at the last moment it doesn't, is one of the things that screenwriting is based around and storytelling in general is based around. You're convinced that the story is going to go a certain way, that in Pride and Prejudice, you know, they're not going to get married. It's not going to work out. Or in... Wait, I got one. I got one. This, I almost cried when this happened. It was so, so sad. It's going to be, it sounds ridiculous. In Toy Story 3, when they are being sucked into the inferno that is the garbage destroyer mm -hmm. dump thing and then you just like they, they just all give up hope and they just hold hands and it's like oh my gosh they are going to die yep like toy story is going to end here there's nothing and then the green aliens come up and you know the claw and they swoop them out of there and it's like oh my gosh yeah that that I, is that is a perfect example and i I cried. I'm not gonna lie. That was a. a, a I cry a lot yeah. during films, so it's not. It's nothing new for me. But I. I did cry at that moment, and I agree with you. That's a perfect example. Um, on a side note, I saw a video on YouTube where these kids, their mom hadn't seen Toy Story three yet, and so these teenagers they edited. Toy Story 3 to end right there like basically they're about to go into the fire and it fades out and the you know the, the ending the theme music starts and the credits start to go 
And their mom's like, no, it can't end there. Are you kidding me? And <laughs> so they totally tricked her that that was the end. And then later they told her, but I thought that was hilarious. That is hilarious. Wow. Anyway, back to, back to, I apologize, back to Stranger Things, back no, to I, screenwriting. Yeah, the, uh, having, I, when I first watched Stranger Things, I had never read anything by Stephen King. The only movies I had ever seen based on his works were The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, and Stand By Me, all three things that aren't traditional horror. Uh, they fan, some of Green Mile has fantastic elements, and Shawshank Redemption definitely has some horrific things in it, as does Stand By Me, which is based on his short story, The Body. They all have sort of horrific things in them, but they aren't of themselves horror movies. But having lately read his on writing, and then I've been going through a podcast called The Stephen King Cast, where a guy talks about every single work that Stephen King has basically written. And then I read The Dead Zone and watched The Mist. And after having done those things, I get the Stephen King comparisons for Stranger Things finally before I had no frame of reference to understand them. But having experienced some Stephen King now, the Stephen King-esque elements of of Stranger Things really stood out to me. And I had already seen the parallels with E.T. and sort of, sort of, of Steven Spielberg's works. But what did you think about all that parallelism and the nostalgia and everything? Well... I was born in 1990, so for me, um, I didn't really have that um, nostalgia element that a lot of other people had. But um, there were definitely a lot. There was definitely a lot of uh, material in the in the what's we'll called a movie, I guess, at this point, um, that really brought me back to a lot of different things, like when the share, like when all the kids are hiding in that bus, or like hiding mm-hmm. out waiting. For to get there and then you see the agents out there and you're like and then they pan into the bus and they're just watching the door and then um the cop kind of looks in with this kind of like indiana jones hat on um that was actually an homage to indiana jones um there was a there was a bit there was definitely some parallelism there and it was deliberate um i think my wife wikipedia it and um there was also the two guys who made the show or at least had the story for the show actually wanted to do uh, a rewrite. I don't know if it was for it, Stephen King's it, but they, they both wanted to work for Stephen King uh, and work on his material and um, they didn't get the job. So, you know, I know that they have a lot of um, things about, you know, basically homages to him too in the book. Like um, if you remember when, when the cop, uh, wants to go examine the body, which was awesome, by the way. I loved that scene. And uh, the guard's like, hey, you can't go in here. And he's like, oh, okay, well, you know, and then he kind of turns around and he just like knocks the guy out. That guy was actually reading a book and I, I, it was a Stephen King book. I think it was Carrie. So they throw in little things to Stephen King um, because, you know, they are fans of his work. So there was definitely a lot in there, even like Easter eggs. But um, I, too, am not as familiar with Stephen King. Um, you know, Hearts in Atlantis, it kind of had the same feel to it in intensity. Um, but beyond that, I'm not I'm not really a King junkie yet. Mm-hmm. I, I actually am very interested in his work after listening to On Writing and 
so on and so forth. So, um, but how about you? Well, I I recognized some of the the parallelism. I I talked about how E.T. was obviously a big influence as far as uh, Steven Spielberg, but with Stephen King, the the story stand by me was clearly an uh, an influence to some degree. I think with the kids and then them going out into the woods so often to look for things and look for clues. That was, I think, you, you can't really separate those two. I don't think. But I, the one thing I wondered about your opinion was. I don't know if you've seen any of this backlash where people are saying that it's too it's too referential and it's the, the references don't always make sense like in one of the scenes in the basement where they play Dungeons and Dragons there is a poster of the movie The Thing and The Thing was a flop and nobody saw it and the chances that these kids these young kids in the year that the thing came out, would have a poster of it is non-existent, basically. And, well, I find that kind of silly, ultimately. It's just a reference. Uh, I wondered about your opinion about, did you think that some of those things took you out of it, or did you, did you really not notice until you kind of thought about it deeply afterwards? So, like, um, let me just make sure I understood that. So, basically, the um, the fact that, basically... Because I feel like the argument maybe could be made that it was just like um, the story was basically a story with basically rewritten. I don't want to say rewritten, but um, scenes that were built around other scenes, like in kind of just one after the other. Uh, is that kind of what you mean? I just mean that there's been a backlash that the film is sort of derivative of those things and not necessarily... And- that it's too referential. Oh, gotcha. So, like, it's not as original, mm-hmm. um, or it's not its own. Um, I mean, I understand why people would say that. I just think that sometimes you need to, and this is funny because I tend to overanalyze things, but I just think you need to sit back and enjoy the story sometimes. And I think that they writ it, writ it, I'm sorry, wrote it that way on purpose. You know, they wanted to basically give, um, they wanted to make it that way and you're never going to please anyone, everybody completely. And, um, the people that had issues with it, you know, if they did it another way, other people would have probably had issues with it for doing it another way. So sometimes I think that people can just be overcritical about those things and, um, that you just kind of need to just sit back, watch it, and enjoy it for what it was for me. I wasn't distracted by reference after reference after reference. When I, when I found a reference, I was like, Oh, Hey, that's pretty cool. Um, but, or like specifically when he, uh, when the sheriff entered the bus and he like did this shot, they did the shot of his face and his hat looked just like Indiana Jones. And I was like, you know, that's what they're trying to make him look like. And so, you know, it kind of shapes your understanding of the character, the more, the more outside knowledge you have, I guess. So mm-hmm. I, I thought it was good, you know. I mean, um, I did talk to, hopefully, hopefully we'll have an author on the show in a couple months. We'll see. But um, I was emailing an author back and forth, and I asked him about a scene in uh, the beginning scene of his book. 
in the like the beginnings um, kind of plot driven event in the story kind of mirrored the very last thing that happened in his book and it kind of showed the difference between what he was like in the beginning to what he was like in the end whereas in the beginning he kind of failed and in the end he not only kind of did it well but he felt stronger in doing it and um, I asked the author about it if he did that on purpose and he was like you know I did but it's not anything to think too much of it just you know, it made sense and it adds to the story, but I didn't write it to be analytic. I, I didn't write it to be analyzed like that, mm-hmm. um, even though it, even though it can be and it's appropriate. Um, I don't know. That's that's kind of how I felt. Well, I think a lot of those things, that example and then just the referential stuff in Stranger Things is sort of like a shorthand that because you already associate certain images and certain situations with other works, then the scene, when it's done properly, can evoke memories of those sort of of those things that you've experienced before and add to the work. And when it's done poorly, you get garbage. But if it's done right, then those other things are recalled in a way that adds to the thing. Um, for me, personally, I think that if this, if the Stranger Things had been set in the present day, I don't think it would have been near as good. I think the fact that it was set in the 80s and they made it seem like the 80s and they took great care to make it sort of this movie-esque 80s where it's uh, so 80s that it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I think that was totally appropriate to the tone and I don't think I would have even watched it if it was set in the modern day. I don't think I would have cared very much. Right. Yeah, I could see that. So there is now word that they are going to have a second season. And I I don't know how I feel about that. How do you feel about that? I cannot wait. I cannot wait. That's how I feel. Um, I, the first thing I did after we finished was, or even before we finished... Uh, when we were on like the second to last episode, I was like, is there going to be a season two? And um, I thankfully found out there would be. So I, if it's, I don't know, it's just like any other movie or book, you know, they have big shoes to fill and it won't ruin the first series or the first movie for me. Um, if the second one doesn't live up to it, I'll just pretend like it never happened. Um, but uh you know, I'm excited because I think that the writing was so good uh, that that I'm confident that they they can do it again. But um, what about you? I I'd like to be that to be that hopeful and optimistic. But every time something like this happens, I always worry. Like you mentioned, Toy Story three earlier, and. When they were talking about making Toy Story 3, I was absolutely opposed to it. I thought, oh, this is going to ruin it. Each movie you make is going to diminish the original to some degree, and it's not going to ever be as good. But the thing about, and I don't think Toy Story 3 was as good as Toy Story 1, but it was still a great film. And it, it wasn't bad. But now they're making a Toy Story 4, and I feel the same way I did about Toy Story 3, that it's going to not turn out to be that great, and we're all going to wish that they hadn't made it and say, oh, you know, you, 
you've destroyed my childhood. But <laughs> I, I want to be hopeful, and I want to think that Stranger Things Season 2 will actually be worthwhile, and that it'll be good, and that they'll be able to move forward in the story without without diminishing the original. But yeah. one of the suggestions that I heard, which is not going to be the case, it's going to be a straight sequel with a lot of the same characters and the story is going to develop. But one of the things that they, that I, that someone had suggested about the series was instead of having it be a direct sequel, have it be sort of an anthology where you tell a different story with different characters and sort of the same themes and things like that so that you're not building. And I think that could be really interesting, but obviously they're going to continue with their story and they set it up in the end for more to come. But I don't know. I, I think if it had stayed as a season, it would have been perfect and it would have been fine, but I'm pessimistically hopeful. We'll say that it, that it is good, but I don't know. I don't know. That's all I can say. I, I think if they did an anthology, um, kind of like that, which again, they're not, but if they did, I wouldn't be as excited. And I understand why people would be. I understand why you would be. But for me, I really like those characters. I don't want to, I don't want to have to get reacquainted with new ones because I want to, I want to see those characters grow more. And, um, that's kind of my stake in it. It's like, okay, these characters are all, are all really good. Uh, I can't really think of a character I didn't like, even though the mom and dad were weak, you know, I think they were appropriate for the story. I liked them for the roles they played, but anyway, um, I don't know. I, I see both sides. I just know that, uh, you know, I, I'm thankful they're keeping, keeping the cast and, uh, it's going to, kind of continue on that way. I want to jump back for one second, though. Um, just out of curiosity, can you think of any movie in a series that you liked more than the first indefinitely? Because I can only think of, like, one. And you're, you're just so right about that. It is so hard to live up to the, to the success of a really well-done first movie, series, book, whatever. The, uh, the one that everyone always says is Terminator 2. Obviously, Terminator 2 is quite a bit better than... Terminator 1, I think. Um, I think most people would agree with that. The uh, the Aliens franchise, Aliens is just as good a movie as Alien. It's different, but it's just as good. And that's James Cameron. He So he was able to do that. Um, most people consider The Dark Knight to be better than Batman Begins. I think they're pretty comparable. Uh... Captain America, The Winter Soldier, is one of the best spy films ever made. <laughs> and Captain America, the first Avenger, the first movie, is just not very good at all, in my opinion. Okay. So, See, I haven't seen any of those movies that you've mentioned. Really? None. Man, you are so... You're so uh, not cultured. I know. I need to go <laughs> eat some uh, Greek yogurt if I can throw in a dad joke there but uh <laughs> the only and i feel i feel childish uh because this is the second time i'm referencing a child's movie here but um how to train your dragon 2 in my opinion 
was so like the first movie was great and it was awesome and I was like yes and then the second one happened and I was like heads and shoulders better than the first one it's it was so, just it's so good oh man I, uh, I'm not gonna see but, so I saw that film on Father's Day with my dad sitting right next to me in the theater <laughs> Man. And it was like gut punch city. It was, uh, yeah. Anyway, we digress, but um, yeah, that, I, uh, it, it does happen, and I am hopeful that they will be able to at least come close to matching the first season. But who uh, who was your favorite character in the series movie, and and uh, and why? Uh, I think probably it was between two characters. I think that the sheriff was a really strong character. I liked that he had uh, a motivation and a backstory and a reason for doing the things that he did that was believable, and they didn't make him a caricature, and they made him competent. I think that's something that's rare is just smart characters doing smart things and he, he wasn't always he didn't always make the right decision and sometimes he was kind of dumb and the choices he made but he always did them for a certain reason and he was always trying to do the right thing and i thought i liked that but i also really really liked 11 i thought that she was just awesome and there's something about little kid characters that are like really really awesome and badass that <laughs> that is very enjoyable in a film and she also had the because she's the focus of the movie and the plot turns around her to some degree the i think that added to it but she also stood out to me as my one of my favorite characters in the thing nice how about you? Uh, I'll have to agree with you on the sheriff there. I, I think it was between two characters. Um, but, uh, yeah, the sheriff was probably my favorite. If if I had to give him a little... If I had to choose one, I'd probably say the sheriff. He... Um, and I think the reason I like him, and this tends to be, like, pretty common for me, if, if a character is introduced and I dislike them quickly... And then they come and then I find out my perception of them was just was just wrong. Um, like, uh, again, child reference Avatar uh, with Zuko. Uh, Zuko became my favorite character by the end of the series. And um, that that's pretty common. So I, I didn't like the sheriff at first. He just kind of seemed like a jerk who didn't care about his job. He came into work late. Um, he was he was getting pestered by a secretary. Hey, you know, Winona Ryder's character has been here for hours. Her son is missing. He's just like, blah, whatever. Get out of here. I don't care. And then she's sitting in his office and he has to deal with it. And it's just like, man, this is a really crappy sheriff. I really don't like him. Um, but pretty quickly it turns around and you see how caring he is. And that was really awesome. So, um, you know, I really liked it for that reason because, I, I just really didn't like him for the first episode. And then after that, <laughs> especially when you find out like why he's there mm -hmm. and about, you know, the fact that he wants to save will so badly because of his own daughter, who he, 
had he, who he was who he was powerless to save. Um, and I, you know, that was I have two daughters, and that was uh, a hard scene for me to watch, where yeah. you kind of come full circle and see, you know, what happened to his daughter, and you know, you're just kind of brought to grips with with the reality of um, life and death, and and how that can affect a person. Um, and I feel terrible because I just watched this and I don't know their names, but, um, Will's older brother, was it Josh? I forget. It's been months since I watched it, so I have excuses. Yeah, right. I really liked his character. Um, he was just, I had kind of low expectations for him. He was just kind of like Jonathan. It was Jonathan's. Yeah. Jonathan. He was just kind of like the outcast who, you know, everybody kind of just thought very little of, and he kind of broke your ex, he, at least my expectations. He exceeded far and above. Um, so I really liked him and I thought he played, played his part really well. Um, there was something else with him. Well, one thing I was, that I thought was very unusual and good was that the boyfriend character actually redeemed himself and just wasn't right? a scumbag. And he <laughs> re- said like, by the end of the, the film, he is the film again, the, the show, the, he's actually not terrible. And you're kind of glad like, Oh, like he's actually, cause you're rooting for Jonathan to usurp him and to get the girl. And then he, at the end of the movie, he doesn't, the, the boyfriend, she stays with the boyfriend and there's, you know, he's nice and he's doing the right stuff. And you're like, Oh, I didn't really see that coming. And I guess the writers didn't either because they actually changed it through the process when they were actually, after they had started filming too, because they liked that character, the actor so much. And the way that it was progressing, they wanted to give him an arc and to actually have some redemption by the end. Yeah, that was really, I I think of all the things that caught me off guard, that was the biggest, the biggest thing, because you just, how many times does that happen ever, period, in anything? Never. I can't think of a single instance. Nope. And I think everybody kind of assumed that Jonathan and... Will's or Mike's sister were just going to end up together. And when that didn't happen, it was kind of like, I'm not going to say I was happy because I like Jonathan, but, um, at the same time, I, you know, you, that character becomes very likable and, and a great part of the story. So, yeah, and they, they, they're even setting up for it or you're seeing how it could develop that way where Jonathan gets the girl but then there's a you know key moment basically where they've they've set up to fight the monster in the, um, Jonathan's mom's house and they're preparing to fight the monster. They've got all these traps set up. They've got weapons, and then the monster attacks. But also the boyfriend shows up, and at that moment, all the things they had set up paid off in reverse where you saw why she didn't you know fall in love with Jonathan and and pick Jonathan and ditch the boyfriend but because he came and he helped 
and help to fight the monster and help to save her brother and his friends and everyone else. Like, that moment is why what they had been setting up for didn't work out. And it's sort of, it was, it was interesting because you saw how they were going to set up, you know, what traditionally would have been the outcome, the guy, the nerd to get the girl essentially, and they didn't do it, but it still worked. Yeah. But even so, I feel like by the end of the series, like, or the, the show, um, I feel like she had reservations about her boyfriend and I feel like she, you know, is still thinking, you know, that way about Jonathan. It was more of a subtext than anything, mm-hmm. I think. But no, I, yeah, it, I know what you mean. Um, one thing I want to talk to you about, and I'm really curious as to your opinion on this. Um, when the sheriff left the hospital after the conflict, he puts on his hat, I think, and he just starts to walk down the parking lot and then a black car pulls up beside him. And it looks like the same type of car that everybody from that complex had driven. And they were the I think the guy who got out was in a suit and he's like, get in the car. And then the sheriff just gets in the car and they drive off. And then it's like three months later um, or whatever. And, um, you know, I'm curious to what you thought of that. Who did you think those people were? I mean, you're obviously going off next to no information. Um, but I think that what followed with him going to that little box and putting food in it for L, and you know it's for L because I think it's like the, the Eggo yeah, waffles. Yeah, it's Eggo waffles, yeah. Yeah. So what did, what did you think about that? Well, having watched a lot of X-Files and then just recently having learned about Stephen King, having not read all of his works, but having listened to a podcast where a guy goes into depth about every single one of his works. Um, I think it's a government agency that is, you know, there's more experiments and more things going on and that possibly they were telling him to keep it quiet and, or they were, doing something nefarious trying to recruit him possibly who knows but I, I think it was just a government agency and if because there's a season two we might find out that you know it was it was something but i don't know not much to go off of like you said but it, it can't be that he was brainwashed or anything or he doesn't remember because he did go out and put the stuff in the woods for l so he clearly remembers and he hasn't yeah. been co-opted I, I, I think my, I didn't really ask it this way, but do you think that they, I personally, the way that I would like to see it go, we'll see if I am a good prognosticator or not. Um, I would like to see it be a government agency, like you said, um, maybe one that was higher up or on the same level and, you know, basically enlisting him to, to basically be Elle's guardian um, they probably want to use her at some point or something like that. But basically, because I, I don't see him, you know, turning into a bad guy, mm-hmm. turning into a villain. And yeah, if they did that, I would be I'd be very irritated with the show um, to the point of like just probably walking away from it for a little while and coming back to it a couple weeks later. But, um, you know, I don't see him turning and flopping sides. But uh, the fact that he's kind of like, I don't. I didn't view him putting that thing in that box for L 
as a memorial. I viewed that as him giving her food. Oh, so yeah, um, so did I. I, I and, hadn't even thought of the alternative. Yeah, and so I'm assuming that they basically said, you know, hey, Elle is alive. You know, you are basically hush hush, keep this quiet. But you know, you're in, you you have to deal with this now. Um, so maybe something like that. But it also it also could have been something more mundane like they wanted to debrief him because he did go into the upside down and come out and they wanted to know about it they wanted to know the information because it's possible that a situation could arise where that information is beneficial i could see it just being something like that as well yeah what um how did how did you feel about him kind of, um, I mean, you, you got to remember too, the cop did not really have any interaction with L, almost at all, in the whole story, mm-hmm. except for like on that bus, and when he when he took him to the school, so he had almost no relationship with her. He didn't really know her, and you know he's this cop in this town, the sheriff of this town, trying to just restore peace and order, and trying to save um, Mike, or I'm sorry, uh, Will who I think he kind of sees as a parallel to his daughter. And so how did you feel about um, him selling L out so that he could make the deal to go after, to go after Will? Did that bother you at all? Or did, were you okay with that? I, it's been a while since I seen, I, I watched it. So I don't really, remember him doing that to be honest with you so obviously so, it, didn't, it didn't bother me to a big degree sure. then i could say yeah it basically when they when they tried to go into the uh upside down they had to try to break into the complex and he was just like don't worry about this you know i know how to get in and then like they just surround him and they they capture him and winona rider and they take them and separate them and uh, winona rider won't give up anything you know she, she was very she bonded with that girl and she wasn't going to give the girl up, but the cop was just like, I'm getting will back. And, um, so he, he basically cut a deal with them and told them yeah, I where I remember that now. I didn't, it didn't bother me. I, I, mean, I thought my, my thought was that he presumed that he could save both. And that right then at that moment, what he needed to do was, try to save will because that was the immediate danger at least that's that's what i remember thinking now that i i'm reminded of it was that he he didn't seem like he was trying to just you know give this girl up for good no but was trying to address the immediate danger which was trying to get will back yeah i don't think he was trying to deliberately give her up for some malicious reason the way that i it didn't bother me really at all because i it it felt real i mean you can have characters who are you know lawful good and um if we're gonna use gaming terminology and you know sometimes characters and i think that's a stereotypical hero where you know you have to where they always try to save everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's not always realistic. And I didn't think that 
at least from the way I thought it, he was willing to give up Al for Will. And not that he wanted to, but that Will needed them and he needed to make a decision. And he probably knew that Al could take care of herself. Yeah. And so, you know, I thought he made a hard call that nobody would want to make. And I and I thought that made the story a little bit richer, you know, because he he wasn't perfect morally. He, in a sense, gave them up, but he did it to, you know, save the person who needed people to save him. So mm-hmm. it's just it's uh, not your go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was going to say that that makes the characters seem, like you said, a little bit more real and a little bit more three dimensional than and that's what the the eight hour runtime of this television series slash movie allowed them to do was actually give them the ability to flesh out characters and have them make choices that are both good and bad and do things that are smart and dumb and grow and that's the I like, I'm a really big fan of episodic television, but I also like things that play out over a long period of time and, you know, sort of this idea of the old-fashioned serial where you have cliffhangers, and I like both of those. I like the self-contained story, and I like ones that grow over a long period of time. But I think this was perfect with essentially eight episodes eight hour long episodes you had the ability to have all the characters grow and you had them able to make these decisions that drove the story forward but also developed them and i think that was pretty i think that was a good example of it yeah for sure so um we've been talking about we kind of um if you recall, we were going to talk about C.S. Lewis and the Narnia books and kind of deviated from that a little bit uh, after we after my wife and I watched the Chronicles of Narnia. But um, so hopefully we'll come back to that next week. Um, I'm actually surprised because it was so impromptu that we've uh, talked so for so much about the about the series. Um, you know, was there you know, I definitely want to hear about what you've been reading otherwise and uh you know anything else that's relevant um i don't know how close we're coming to our normal time but uh was there anything else for you about stranger things that you thought was notable uh no i think we we pretty much covered a a wide swath of it i'm sure we could probably spend an episode on each episode if we went back and analyzed them further and talked about them and that might be interesting to do somewhere down the line to kind of go more into depth about certain aspects of the show but I, i think we did a good overall yeah, talk about it. Uh, I've actually been reading. I've actually been listening to an audiobook of uh, Jim Butcher, who we've talked about before. He writes the Dresden Files, and he wrote the Codex Alera series. And his new book was called the The Aeronauts Windless, and it's uh, in his Cinder Spires series. And it's sort of like a steampunk uh, sort of a story. And I've been listening to that through the Overdrive app, which we've talked about, which is. Uh, an app that allows you to download ebooks or audio f- audiobooks onto your mobile device uh, through your library, your local library, if you have a library card. And uh, I've been li- so I've been listening to that, and it is fantastic so far. There, uh, one thing that I'll 
I'll mention about the series is that there are cats that are uh, sort of more intelligent, or at least they can communicate with some humans. And they're just like regular cats. They're a little bit smarter, possibly, but they act and think just like you would presume that a cat would act and think, and it's it's really funny. And one of the viewpoint characters is actually a cat, and there's this ship, so these flying ships that they have, and the cat is with one of the other characters, and they go on this ship, and then later the cat says, oh, this ship's purpose is to take me to places so therefore it is mine <laughs> and uh it was it was just perfect because you think like man that's exactly how a cat would <laughs> what you think a cat would be thinking about that is funny but yeah it's a it's a really good book and i'm pretty excited to to buy it at some point so that i can reread it uh after i'm done listening to the audiobook because i like it that much so far nice what about you? What have you been reading? Oh, man. Well, it's been about a week and a half, I think. And so I've had my hand in a few different in a few different books here. Um, so the first one that I finished was and the only one I finished, I should say, is um, it's actually another course by Michael C. Drought, D.C. Drought. Sorry. Um, he's a professor at Wheaton, I think, was it? Um, anyway, he is actually, I think, probably one of the guys around today who is are, is one of the most knowledgeable people about Tolkien. He's done a lot with um, language and um, studied Tolkien. I think he wrote a paper about Tolkien for his doctorate or something like that. I forget. But he has um, a number of different audio lectures on Audible. And the one I I just I finished one prior to this on grammar from him. And it was really good. And he kind of forget if he talked about Lord of the Rings or Tolkien at all in that, but it's called um, Rings, Swords, and Monsters, Exploring Fantasy Literature, and it's part of a the Modern Scholar series, and there's, uh, I have one on sci-fi I'm going to listen to at some point, and, uh, but this book, or this, this lecture material, really focused on Tolkien, because Tolkien, while he didn't create the genre, uh, he was certainly the one who kind of popularized it, and you know, made it into kind of allowed it to be what it is today. I mean, somebody probably would have come along after him if he didn't. But um, in this book, he kind of dissects the Hobbit, uh, or in this audiobook, he kind of goes through the Hobbit and all the other main books. And he also just talks about Tolkien's life. And it's very interesting to to know a lot of the stuff that I had never known. Uh, and you know a lot of the stuff I feel like because you are so literarily sound um but like tolkien you know he was a linguist he was a is it philologist yeah he was a philologist and um basically he didn't really like english that much he thought it was a clunky language so he created elvish and then he kind of wrote the lord of the rings around it and the only reason he was a he he knew a lot about literature because he'd studied it and um, he was very well versed on oral tradition. And so The Hobbit was kind of the first story that happened. And I didn't know this. And uh, well, I'll try to be as brief as possible. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, but he 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 only wrote everything down because as he was retelling The Hobbit to his kids, 
um, his young, one of his younger sons, or it might have been his only younger son, um, was like, Dad, you know, you said that Thorin, I think it was Thorin, you said that Thorin was wearing this and it was this color, and but this time you said it was this and this color. And Tolkien, it bothered Tolkien so much that he was just like, oh, I'm going to write it down. I'm just going to write it down so that this never, ever happens again. And uh, so it was his, his one of his sons who inspired him to write it down. And, um, you know, I feel like I've been pretty impatient, um, you know, <laughs> waiting for uh, the King Killer, the next book in the King Killer series to come out. And it's, you know, I've only finished it for a few months and it's been like, what, five years or something like that since? Yeah, since it's the second... been quite a while since I came out. But what I found out was before, you know, the Lord of the Rings and everything else was released by Tolkien, it, it took 17 years to get a sequel. So I don't feel so bad anymore in, in, uh, with that knowledge. So, But um, I highly recommend it. Um, Mr. Drought is a phenomenal uh, narrator and an excellent scholar, very, very knowledgeable. And it will enrich your reading of all those books and, and of the entire genre. One of the things I really like, though, that I never knew um, – Bjorn, you remember Bjorn, right? Yes. Do you know what that means in its original language? I don't. It means either bear or warrior. So what did he do with Bjorn? He made a bear warrior. <laughs> it just took took the meetings and put them together. Um, and I thought that was cool. And also um, for words like um, I think Theoden and all the other kings, like the king of Gondor, all their names are actually words that mean king. So just kind of fun tidbits, because um, Tolkien was a philologist and he knew all the he knew a bunch of uh, information about languages, and so he kind of incorporated them into stories. And he kind of actually redefined um, and gave meaning to a lot of the more ambiguous words from I think it's like Anglo-Saxon descent of Anglo-Saxon descent that we didn't really have the context of. So he kind of took those words and. And, uh, you know, put meaning into them, which I thought was really cool. So it's definitely worth your time. And then after I finished that, I started listening to The Hobbit again. Um, I'm loving that right now. And I also decided to pick up The Way of Kings again. So I'm uh, I'm more committed to it now that I've finished. And I also finished Legion Skin Deep, the second book in Legion. Nice. Oh, man, that was so good. So good. And I just think it was so funny, and you'll appreciate this. When um, for those of you that haven't read it, pick it up. It, when you know, kind of like all hope is lost, and he just explains, "Hey, if this assassin separates me and you, she's going to kill us." And then, not even five minutes later, she calls him, and she's like, "Hey, you're coming with me. Um, you know, you're not in danger." And he just explained this to the guy, to to his uh, to the guy next to him, and so he's like, "Okay, so I know what's going to happen." And then the assassin gets a phone call. And she's like, right, right as she's about to kill him, she gets a phone call. And she's like, oh, okay. And then I think she even laughs. And the guy's like, what happened? And uh, the main character uh, is just like, well, I bought the company that hired the assassin to kill yeah. me. And he's like, part. he's like, so you stopped an assassin by means of a hostile takeover? And it was so good. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Incredible. So... Brandon Sanderson has I, I have new faith in him, so I'm I'm gonna stick out the way of Kings before I get into the Mistborn series. Um because I'm already twelve hours in, so 
Yes, that has been my my last week and a half's reading. Well, awesome. Anything yeah. else you want to talk about? I just want to thank our listeners for uh, listening again. I have to convince my wife to become one of you uh, because she hasn't listened to one yet. Apparently, I found out. So, um, so yeah, that that's my goal for the week. But uh, no, just thank you guys for listening. Again, um, Cat's Cradle is still on my mind. I have yet to set up my audiobook local library thing because um, we have a similar program. It's just uh, life has happened, so I haven't gotten to look into it. But uh, thanks for listening. Uh, you know, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and uh, you know, submit your recommendations. And you know, we'd love to hear from you and uh, look into them. All right, and uh, we'll see you again next time. <laughs>